0: Based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology, submissions are due June fifteenth. Visit science.org/eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August twentieth, two thousand twenty-one. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the sister journals. First up this week, science writer Mike Price discusses the newest effort at creating a Mars-like living situation here on Earth. Next, researcher William Brady talks about his Science Advances paper on how moral outrage may be amplified by social media platforms like Twitter. Now we have science writer Mike Price. He wrote a story this week on the newest effort at creating a Mars-like living situation here on Earth. At the site of the first place to attempt a large-scale sealed habitat, biosphere two in Arizona. Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you doing, sir? I'm good. I wanna go seal myself into a biosphere. (laughs) But other than that, I'm good.
1: It's definitely a the kind of structure for our current moment.
0: Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of history at this place, biosphere two. Back in the nineties, people lived there sealed in for two years, but It didn't exactly work out then. What happened to Biosphere 2?
1: Biosphere 2 was intended to be a self-sustaining habitat where the oxygen that they would breathe would be produced by the plants that they were growing. They would grow all of their own food. They would manage the environment. They would essentially take care of this multi-acre space that was built for them, and it would take care of them. One of the things that they didn't count on was how the microbes wound up consuming a lot more of the oxygen than they had predicted that created a situation where there just wasn't enough oxygen to support the eight human beings that were living inside and oxygen levels eventually got critically low and the decision was made to pump in external oxygen. In some ways, that was more of a PR disaster than a scientific disaster, because when you talk to people that work with Biosphere 2 today, they don't describe it as a failure, and they don't think of it as a failure, because the science that was produced from the people that were living in the Biosphere 2, they, they call themselves Biospherians, they still produced a lot of good research on on how crops can be produced under sealed conditions and about how psychological understanding of how small groups work and live together under stressful situations over long periods of time. Just did a lot of really interesting and useful research on how sealed system habitats develop over time. But The PR arm of Biosphere 2 had really heavily promoted the idea that it was supposed to be completely self-sustaining. It went from being kind of a media darling to being described as a flop. It's sort of unclear whether or not that's a fair characterization, because on the goals that they had set up for themselves to be a completely self-sustaining sealed habitat, it did fail. But it wasn't a scientific failure, because they still produced a lot of interesting and useful research.
0: And what is it like there now? What is Biosphere 2 up to these days?
1: These days, it is managed by the University of Arizona. And today it is both a tourist attraction. So you can go and you can visit and take tours of the facility. And it's also used as an earth science laboratory. And researchers there are working on artificial coral reefs and trying to understand desert ecosystems and doing some climate change studies on different biomes that exist within the biosphere. And they still have the capability to seal segments of the biosphere to do some closed system testing, but it no longer itself is a totally closed system.
0: So nowadays, Biosphere 2 is focused on understanding processes on Earth, modeling different ecosystems here. But what we're going to talk about today is the newest edition of a Mars analog. In this case, it's Space Analog for the Moon and Mars. It's called SAM. It actually is taking place at the same location as Biosphere 2. But how is it different than that big effort in the 1990s?
1: It's actually a refurbishing of a test module that was built in 1987 that was used to pilot a lot of the early technology that was eventually used in Biosphere 2. So the building itself, it kind of looks like a miniature version of the Biosphere 2. It's only the size of about a small house, so it's nowhere near as large as Biosphere 2. So what a Mars analog is, and there's about a dozen of them around the world. Mars analogs are facilities that are designed to mimic some aspect of living on Mars or the moon. And they do this in different ways. A lot of them are isolated habitats that exist far away from civilization so that you can get the feeling of being isolated or out in the desert and you have the sense of being on a Mars-like landscape. Some of them offer sealed environment conditions, though most of them don't go so far as to seal off the oxygen supply and, and everything. And that is one of the unique and interesting things that SAM is doing is it's creating a environment that can be hermetically sealed so that you're going to be able to grow plants and those plants will provide some, if not all, of the oxygen that you will need to survive within the SAM for a period of of weeks or months. It's not going to be the situation in Biosphere 2 where people are living in this for years at a time. But you could come in for weeks, months at a time and teams could rotate in and out and they will sort of be entering the same sealed habitat each and every time.
0: Is it Mars-like or is it more just what it's like to live in a module where you can't go outside and do anything? You have to stay inside the whole time.
1: It's probably closer to the latter. It's Mars-like in the sense that they're going to pressurize it to the same atmospheric pressure as Mars. And then you will be able to put on a pressurized spacesuit and then go outside into what they're calling their Mars yard, which is a half acre space outside of the outside of the facility that's been landscaped to look like Mars and is even going to have some scaled down versions of real life Martian craters inside of the SAM. It will be pressurized to feel like the atmospheric pressure of Mars. They are tinting the glass so that the sunlight that enters is going to be at the same amount of sunlight that is coming in that a structure on Mars would receive. And if you put on this pressurized suit and go outside, you will maintain that same pressure as if you were on Mars. So they're trying to create as close as they can get to the feeling of being on Mars without the fact that the gravity will still be Earth's gravity and the environmental temperature will still be Earth's environmental temperature.
0: And what do you see as the kind of scientific questions that they can ask using this facility?
1: They want to explore the transition from a situation where you're coming in with external oxygen, all of your oxygen is what you have brought in from Earth, the transition from that to a system where plants that you are growing inside of a greenhouse are providing some amount of your oxygen and looking at kind of what it will take to eventually get to a completely self sustaining system. They don't actually think that they're going to be able to achieve complete self sustaining oxygen within this facility on the time scale that people will be living in it. It will take far longer than a few months. But they want to use this as, as a way to model. And improve the algorithms for learning what it will take for that transition to happen on an actual Martian surface. They're trying to use the SAM facility to provide some real life data to plug into an algorithm called CMOC. And that stands for a scalable interactive model of an off world community. And the idea behind that is that if you plug in all of the different variables between the types of plants you're growing, the number of them, if you have you know, 20 potato plants growing and some lettuce and some onions, you can calculate how much oxygen that those plants will be producing, how much carbon dioxide they will need. You can then add in the number of human beings who will be living there. You can start doing calculations on, you know, if I harvest this many onions, I'll plant this many more potatoes to make up for it. And so they'll be, ultimately be able to have an algorithm that you can plug in that will tell you like what it will take to achieve self-sustenance.
0: Hmm. Is this going to take into account microbes?
1: Yeah. So this time they are taking into account microbes. Um, That is one of their areas of focus is looking at how the microbial communities will react to the comings and goings of, of different people and plants.
0: What's the status of the facility now? We talked about it's on Biosphere 2, it's using something built in 87. Are they starting experiments now? Do they already have the Mars yard? Where are we?
1: Earlier this summer, they finished the first phase of construction and refurbishment of the greenhouse, which is the original test module for Biosphere 2. That greenhouse is operational in the sense that they were able to fully seal off and create a hermetic seal for the first time in more than 30 years. They have installed a CO2 scrubber to remove carbon dioxide from the environment, and it's fully running, essentially. It's at the stage where you could come in and start conducting some basic research experiments on greenhouse conditions in a Mars-pressurized steel environment. The next phase that they're working on now is to connect three different shipping containers that will contain living quarters, kitchen, scientific laboratories, and allow people to stay within the facility for for longer periods for weeks or months on end. That's going to take another few months By early next year, they're planning to have all of the basic construction completed so that they can start bringing in research teams to start working and and living within the facility.
0: Okay. And what about the Mars Yard?
1: So the Mars Yard is just getting under construction as well. They haven't done much of the actual landscaping yet. That's probably one of the later things that they're going to have completed.
0: Where is the funding coming from for this?
1: Right now, all of the funding has come from private donations as well as some matching funds from the University of Arizona's tech transfer office. They've so far been able to put together about $55,000 for the renovation. They have another $42,000 and change left over to work on. And now they are beginning their pitch to bring in outside companies to come and do research within their facility, which will generate the lion's share of their income. They have some agreements lined up, but they haven't publicized who is going to be coming in yet. They also are going to be applying to NASA for some grant money, but they are going to be competing with other analogs that exist in the world for the same relatively small pool of grant money. Apparently, it's a pretty competitive world trying to get funding for space analogs.
0: Hmm, Interesting. Do you see this as a continuation of what happened at Biosphere 2? I mean, I know that it's using one of the first modules that was built there to test the setup, but is it really related to what has come before?
1: You know, while I was a kid growing up in Arizona,
0: oh yeah, (laughs) uh,
1: Biosphere was always a big news item. I remember finding it very interesting to read about. And I went and visited the facility while the original experiment was still going on as part of a school trip. So it's always held kind of a special place in my imagination. And it's interesting to think about returning to the idea of a sealed, self-sustaining habitat on a smaller scale, perhaps a more manageable and realistic scale than the the original Biosphere 2. They're definitely conscientious of this legacy that they're maintaining. And the first two external guests that will be staying in SAM early next year are going to be two of the biospherians that lived in Biosphere 2 during the original two-year experiment. I'm personally excited to see what they can pull off, but you know, it's, it's early days and they, they don't have all the, the funding established yet. I think a lot of people are watching and waiting.
0: Great. Thanks, Mike.
1: Thank you, Sarah. It was nice talking to you.
0: Mike Price is a science writer based in San Diego. You can find a link to the article we discussed at sciencemag.org podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with researcher William Brady on the interaction between moral outrage and social media. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org Eppendorf to apply today. Do you find going on the internet to be a bracing experience these days? Does reading Twitter make you feel mad, sad, fiery? In Science Advances this week, William Brady and colleagues looked at one of the stronger emotions that seems to be brought out quite a lot these days by social media. We're talking about moral outrage. Hi, William. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm not mad, but maybe I will be later when I go check my Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of have a sense for what moral outrage means, something like being angry about an injustice or a violation. But I'm guessing there must be a very specific definition if you want to do research on this topic.
2: Yes. So we define moral outrage by three key components, a specific feeling that is associated with negativity, high arousal, in other words, feeling very worked up. And more specifically, it's typically described as a feeling of anger and disgust mixed together. The second component is it tends to be caused by a perception that someone or something has transgressed against your sense of right and wrong, usually defined by your cultural group.
0: That's where the moral part comes in.
2: Exactly. It's specifically linked to the domain of morality and also politics. And the third component is it typically comes with certain consequences. So it motivates people, for example, to punish others or to call them out. This actually turns out to serve an important function in society. It can promote social cooperation. It can make people less likely to commit a transgression in the future because they have these consequences.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people complain that there's a lot of it online. You kind of can't step into the Internet without feeling like people are outraged at each other or trying to get you to take action based on outrage, like those things you're talking about. What exactly were you trying to figure out with your research? Were you trying to figure out if there's more moral outrage or social media is encouraging it? Kind of your primary questions here.
2: At the very broadest level, we were interested in trying to understand why moral outrage seems to be amplified on social media and online social networks. And in particular, we were interested in the social learning side of things. So in other words, how does social information, things that we're exposed to when we log on, actually influence our decisions to express moral outrage? And we examined whether people are influenced by two forms of social learning. So one of those is reinforcement learning and the other is norm learning. So first, I'll quickly mention what reinforcement learning is. So what I mean by that is the way that we learn from others' positive and social feedback that is given to us when we commit a behavior, for example, when we express moral outrage. And hallmark of social media platforms is that we often get social feedback delivered to us very saliently in the forms of likes retweets, shares, things of that nature. Really what this is, is a form of social reward when you think about it psychologically. And so we were interested to see if people change their outrage expressions over time through this reinforcement learning process as a response to the social feedback that they get. And then the other form of learning I mentioned, norm learning, is the idea that people might adjust their outrage expressions by matching the expressions that they observe in their social network. The expressions that they infer are normative, or in other words, most common in their network.
0: Going back to your definition of moral outrage, one of the important parts of this project was training an AI or using machine learning on expressions of moral outrage. How were you able to get an algorithm to pick these out?
2: The way that we do that is first collecting a large batch of tweets, so actually in our case it was 26,000 tweets, that were labeled by trained annotators for whether or not each of the tweets expressed moral outrage. These were tweets that were collected of people communicating about contentious political topics in American politics. And then our machine learning program will learn the linguistic features associated with the tweets that the annotators say and agree that contain outrage, then we can take that program and it will make predictions on a new set of tweets or data for the probability that any given tweet contains moral outrage.
0: Can you give some examples of a statement that contains moral outrage? Sure.
2: An example of An outrage tweet that came from the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing data set. And this is actually not the verbatim text of a real tweet because we don't want to violate the privacy of a user, but it was something like this. So this was a tweet that was directed at Senator Gillibrand, and it says, You are a disgrace, in all caps, shut your lying mouth. There is no evidence of assault. Another one from another data set the United passenger mistreatment video, which you might remember from a while ago that went viral. And it says, I'm in total disgust and madness because of what United did. This is totally unacceptable. So what you can see in these types of tweets is that there's clearly this expression of negative high arousal emotions. And there's tends to be this mention of something related to morality. So this is unacceptable. They're making a claim that, you know, this shouldn't happen in terms of their sense of right and wrong.
0: Once you were comfortable with how your program was operating on the training data, what data sources did you use for the actual experiment that you did?
2: The observational component of our data, which is 12.7 million tweets, comes from public tweets about contentious political topics. We have 7,000 plus users who we looked at their public tweets over time to look at the association between the social reward that they receive when they express outrage tweets and how it was associated with changes in their outrage tweeting in the future. In our experimental phase of our study, which enables us to make causal claims about the impact of social reward and also norm learning, we recruited 240 participants to participate in a controlled experiment in a mock social media environment.
0: Did people who got a lot of likes on an immoral outrage expression act differently down the line?
2: Yeah, so we do see on average across our population of users that we observed a positive association between the amount of social reward that people receive. So in other words, the likes and the shares when they express outrage in the past and the extent to which they express outrage in the future. And then in the lab, we also show that if we manipulate more social feedback when people choose to express outrage, they will start to express more outrage over the course of the experiment. So we see it both in the observational phase of our study and in our controlled experiment.
0: And what about the social norm learning? Did that also have an effect on outrage expression?
2: Yeah, we do find that norm learning seems to play an important role. And interestingly, It seems to have bigger effects when you look at it overall. So what we find in the observational studies is that the ideological extremity, so how politically extreme someone is, of their network was more predictive of their outrage expression than their own ideological extremity
0: you're measuring the expression of moral outrage. You're not actually finding out how people feel. You're not measuring their emotional state. So could you be actually looking at people performing this rather than feeling it?
2: We don't actually have a privileged access to the true feelings people have when they're composing these tweets. And I think that's a really interesting area for future studies. So what we can say is that people's expressions are potentially changing as a function of norm learning and reinforcement learning. And we don't want to say that this means that their outrage expression is performative. It definitely doesn't. You can genuinely feel outrage and be influenced by your social environment. I mean, that's how most things tend to work, right? Yeah. But at the same time, Some people could be expressing perhaps more outrage than they really feel. And there's no real way for observers to actually know when that's happening.
0: Yeah. These platforms weren't designed with the intent of getting people to express their moral outrage and then build on it and kind of whip each other into a frenzy, right?
2: That's right. There's kind of this black and white conversation that happens a lot where on one side people say, Oh, social media platforms are destroying political discourse. And then on the other side, and this is sometimes an argument social media platforms have made oh, no, these platforms are totally neutral. This is just humans behaving in another context. What our study results actually suggest is that neither of those answers is true. It's really some combination because moral outrage is a natural tendency that people have. It's really deeply ingrained in us to call out people when our sense of right and wrong has been transgressed against. But at the same time, there are design features of social media, like what we show, the delivery of social feedback, the way that outrage is displayed in our news feeds that could potentially amplify that natural tendency. So it seems to actually be, I think what we're showing, a combination of both our psychology and the technology. It's potentially amplified by these platforms.
0: We've mostly been talking about extreme ideologies or people getting outraged. What about the middle guys, the moderates? What happens to them in these scenarios?
2: Research is coming out now suggesting that a lot of the most extreme political content and perhaps even a lot of the outrage is coming from actually a minority of users who are the most politically extreme. And the majority of users are less extreme and potentially more politically moderate. So what happens to those users when they're exposed to this type of information? So our studies are suggestive of one possibility, which is that some of these users, they do show a little bit of conformity where they might increase slightly their outrage expression if they're getting more social feedback and they're seeing more of this stuff represented in their social network. But there's also another possibility, which is that some of these people who are more moderate actually are just turned off by this content that they're seeing. And they tend to either leave the platform or maybe they just don't speak out as much. Figuring out exactly What determines which of these processes happen is really important for future research. And it also is important to figure out because both of these processes can lead to a situation in which the more moderate views are not actually well represented on the platform, even though there are moderate people and majority on the platform.
0: Do you see this? Maybe for future research, looking at whether or not these expressions of outrage that are happening online and maybe increasing are they translating to in person interactions?
2: Yes, I think one of the areas of research that we're very interested in looking at is to look and follow people and see, yeah, if there is influence of the behavior on the platforms, whether it translates into offline action, for example, the likelihood of attending a political protest donating to a cause or things like that. The other thing that we're looking at, getting back to this question of to what extent do expressions actually track on to real feelings, is measuring the extent to which people report feeling certain levels of moral outrage, and then comparing that to how users on the platform actually perceive the levels of outrage in the message. There is theoretical reason to think that the social media environment is conducive to overperceptions or misperceptions of outrage because we know that the ability for us to express emotions is highly constrained compared to in-person interaction.
0: Thank you so much, William.
2: Yeah, thanks a lot. This was fun.
0: William Brady is a postdoctoral fellow in the psychology department at Yale University. You can find a link to the Science Advances article we discussed at sciencemag.org podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby, and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.